0: Dr. Daniels, and you are listening to Healing with Auntie Daniels here on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul Station. Okay, well, tonight's topic is Crohn's disease or irritable bowel disease, breakthrough, research breakthrough. As you know, I don't make accusations, I only take confessions. And so tonight we're going to review um, some new... Um, publications from the medical literature on Crohn's disease and uh, what they've discovered. First, I'd like to say uh, a little bit about what I was taught in medical school. This is, of course, the Dark Ages, and that would be 1979 to 83 that was medical school for me. And we were taught that Crohn's disease was basically a psychological disorder um, of young people. And it generally followed them through life. And we could give them drugs and, you know, suppress their immune system in various ways. And, of course, there's always surgery. just Why just yank out the colon or part of the small intestine that's causing the problem? And we had endless debates as to if a person had an, uh, large intestine disease, which would be the colon, or if the person had small intestine disease, of course, the treatment was always the same, just cut it out or suppress the immune system. So whether it was the colon or the small intestine, it never I never understood why it made a difference since the treatment was, well, identical. So it's lar- it was largely um, an incurable disease. And that's pretty much what I was taught. And even though it was incurable, one should refer the person to the gastroenterologist to get the Latest, of course, in care. Yes, care. Not cure, but care. And so I had a pretty dismal outlook on Crohn's disease, uh, certainly in medical school, since I never saw anybody um, with the disease recover to a state of um, happiness and health. And so I just... When I opened my medical practice, I just prayed I would never, ever see a Crohn's disease patient. I just, I would say, oh, God, please don't let, don't let one of these people walk into my office because, one, we haven't been taught anything in medical field that would help. And, number two, those specialists, once I send him to the specialist, would probably torture the poor soul. So, uh, as luck would have it, of course, <laughs> a young person with Crohn's disease did come to my office. And so this lady, uh, she must have been about a 14, 15 teenager, um, came to Syracuse to visit her grandmother. And so her grandmother was in charge of taking care of her. And so when the the mother sent her, she says, well, here's my daughter, and she's got Crohn's disease. And the mother was a patient of mine. So the mother said, I know. I'm going to take her to Dr. Daniels. And so uh, when I saw this teenager and looked at the chart, Crohn's disease, I was like, Panic. <laughs> so by that time, uh, it was at least 1993, so I was into um, alternative stuff, at least in terms of m- making um, diet recommendations. So I made uh, some diet recommendations to her. I said, Look, you know what? This condition you have, uh, medicine really isn't very much good for it. And she says, mm, I know, I know. And she gave me the list. You know, she's been on pregnosone, she's been on this, she's been on that. I said, well, you know, why don't you just uh, <clears throat> eat 100% organic and go vegan? No dairy and no uh, white flour products and just totally unrefined foods. She had such an incredible improvement. Uh, and she was so grateful that she even continued to write me thank you letters after she went home to her mother. And she even returned to Syracuse um, I think they spend more time with their grandmother because she had just improved so much. So, of course, I kept this to myself because this is not exactly authorized information. I mean, it certainly wasn't the standard of care. And so today we're going to take a look and see what your doctor, what's your doctor thinking about uh, Crohn's disease. And here it says, uh, this is my favorite, starts off with, Depression and anxiety can shorten the time to irritable bowel disease flare. Now, shorten the time to a flare means depression and anxiety basically can make these flares happen sooner and more frequently. And so this uh, depression uh, emotional theory um, still lives. So let's see what they say about it these days let's see, oh, first let's get a date on this, February 18, 2016, so more or less uh, a year ago. And this is written by a PhD, so we'll say he's got credentials. So depression and anxiety can precede and shorten the time to recurrence of inflammatory bowel disease in some patients, according to a Kaplan-Meier analysis. Hmm. It thus seems prudent to recommend that screening for common mental disorders and referring for psychological slash psychiatric treatment should be included in standard irritable bowel disease care. So what you're saying then is we should screen people with irritable bowel disease for psychiatric problems and make sure they're taking a SSRI or other appropriate psychiatric medication um, to see if the flares can be uh, minimized. Now, actually, this is a pretty big um, Leap. So let's take a look and see what evidence they they provide for this. Because what we're saying is depression causes increased flares. But the question is, does an antidepressant reduce these flares? So though irritable bowel disease has long been associated with depression and anxiety, the relationship with the disease has been controversial. Now, of course, in medical school, it was explained as just an absolute certainty. With no causal link established to date, study authors report. However, in a recent study, Dr. Mikolka Wallace and colleagues found that seven of 12 prospective studies positively associated depression and anxiety with irritable bowel flare-ups. Now, seven of 12 studies—that's not exactly, you know, a resounding. Uh, confirmatory situation. While well, five did not, they attribute the inconsistency between the studies to differences in study design, such as observation period, sample size, selection, methods of assessing anxiety, and irritable bowel disease severity. So the investigators, therefore, so they they reviewed the literature, and by the way, this is standard protocol. Whatever research is done. You can't just say, you know, I'm curious about something. I want to do a study and see what the answer might be. No. You have to review the literature first, see what everyone else is saying, and then construct your study to somehow fit somewhere in the neighborhood of what everyone else is thinking. And this is an interesting thing because people in medical school, I would have an idea, and they would say, well, where would you get it from? i said, well, it's an idea. It just came from my brain. I said, Oh, no, 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 that's 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 not okay. You have an idea. You have to go look in the medical literature to make sure that that idea has already existed and then go from there. And if the idea you have does not already exist, then you have to go talk to a professor for authorization and okay to have that idea. I think that's interesting. But... um It sounded pretty bizarre to me, so I figured I'd keep going on and having my own ideas. And so they designed uh, a prospective study using the Swiss irritable bowel disease cohort to paint a portrait of the associations between the two psychiatric conditions and irritable bowel disease. Patients participated between 2006 and 2015. So this is a pretty good uh, length of time, about nine years and were diagnosed with irritable bowel disease at least four months before the study began. So clinical exams to assess, assess them at enrollment and every year thereafter, um, the used the Crohn's Disease Activity Index, and patients took the 14-question anxiety and depression scale with a score of 7 being the cutoff for anxiety and depression symptoms. Okay. So of the 2007 patients included in the study, now get this, 2,007 patients, you're going to need to remember that number, including the study, 56% had Crohn's disease, and the remainder had ulcerative colitis, or indeterminate colitis. Median age at baseline was 40 years, 48% were male, and disease duration was seven years, uh, average disease duration. So at baseline, 20% of the participants exceeded the cutoff for the depression score. So more than 20%, were definitely depressed. And 37% had an anxiety score above cutoff. Okay. So in other words, 20% were depressed and 37% had anxiety. There may have been some overlap between these two. Okay, so the prevalence of depression was about equal between the sexes, but females were more likely to experience anxiety. And so there's no significant association among Crohn's disease activity index score anxiety or depression at baseline or between um, any other index measuring anxiety or depression. All right. However, in participants experiencing depression or anxiety, clinical recurrence of irritable bowel disease occurs sooner than among patients without depression or anxiety. So there's two things going on here that we can't, I don't know if the study can determine is, Either the same thing causes anxiety and depression that causes Crohn's or irritable bowel, or anxiety and depression causes irritable bowel. So in other words, if both are caused by the same thing, then treating the anxiety or depression symptomatically may or may not be uh, beneficial. So depression and anxiety also track with specific manifestations of irritable bowel Depression alone had an association with fistulas, surgery, and steroid use. Now, just for your information, steroids cause depression. Depression is a side effect of steroids, just uh, for your dep- uh, information. And anxiety alone was associated with flares in Crohn's disease, uh, ulcerative colitis. And steroid use. And so anxiety and depression were both associated with use of biologicals in uh, Crohn's disease. So again, this is really not much of a statement since we know the side effect of steroid use is depression and anxiety. So psychosis and mental uh, illness or mental disease is a side effect of steroid use, period. So the association between anxiety and overvalue recurrence was weaker than that for depression so anxiety didn't seem to lead to the recurrence but depression seemed to be a little higher the researchers speculate that apathy in patients with depression may cause non-compliance with treatment whereas anxiety may be more episodic such as when a person cannot find a bathroom okay so i can tell you i've worked with anxious people they're anxious all the time even when there's nothing to be anxious about. That's the nature of anxiety. If the anxiety is actually associated with an episode or an event, then that's not clinical or disease-related anxiety. (laughs) Okay, so study authors acknowledge limitations of study include self-assessment of anxiety and depression and the length of time between follow-ups. So actually, um, self-assessment is really the only way of measuring anxiety There is no other way. There's no blood test to measure anxiety. There's um, no X-ray that measures anxiety. So the only way to ever measure anxiety is self-assessment or self-report or what the person says to the doctor. So to say that the study is limited by asking the patient questions is um, absurd. Okay. So previous studies have only examined the issue using a cross-sectional um, design, meaning that causality cannot be established. So the findings are therefore new and important and provide support for the existence of brain-gut interactions, which may affect the natural history of irritable bowel. However, this study could not distinguish a disease connection between depression and anxiety in irritable bowel flares from an increased likelihood of reporting worsening Gastrointestinal symptoms, along with individuals with impaired mood. So, in other words, they didn't find any cause or effect relationship because they did the study over time. And um, so now, they're, they agree with the study's authors in recommending inclusion of psychological or psychiatric screening in standard irritable bowel care. Whatever the reason for this association, it has important implications for future management strategies in irritable bowel. Okay, so in other words. They found no cause-and-effect relationship and treating, what they didn't look at was did treating the depression with drugs cause a reduction in episodes? So they did not look at that. And, of course, there's a good reason not to look at that. And the reason not to look at that is because you don't want the answer if it turns out to be that treating the depression with antidepressants or let's call it the standard of care, actually does not in any way improve irritable bowel outcomes. So what they're, all they're saying is, okay, just like we suspected, these people who have this particular disease have an increase in uh, depression and anxiety. And uh, they the, the, the evidence, of course, for treatment is pretty weak. Uh, they looked in the literature, and the association was only found in... Uh, slightly over 50% of studies. And further, they only found that 20% were depressed and 37% were anxious. And so you can't really find a cause-and-effect relationship when such a small percent even have these um, issues. And again, the problem uh, is it's there's not a cause and effect here. However, what they did find was people who had depression associated with the irritable bowel did seem to have more frequent episodes. But again, this is obscured by the use of steroids, which is a depression causing drug. And so um, the results are still up in the air. And certainly, what's not covered here. It is very frustrating to have an illness for which, uh, which causes you a lot of pain and for which your medical therapy is not especially effective. For those of you who don't, don't know what ulcerative colitis is or irritable bowel, these people have uh, frequent abdominal pain. They have uh, bouts of diarrhea, um, often as many as 20 bowel movements a day, alternating with bouts of constipation where they're absolutely unable to go. And they have bloating and uh, food intolerance. It's very, very uh, difficult, inconvenient, and makes it almost impossible for many people to just participate in daily activities. Uh, one client who told me all they wanted was to be able to, if they got an invitation to an event, they just wanted to be able to say they were going to come and count on actually showing up. And this is a kind of uh, illness that just can show up anytime, can ruin somebody's day, and make it, as I said, impossible for them to reliably participate in life. <laughs> Someone in the chat room says, having Crohn's or colitis is enough to make you bloody depressed. That, that's true. Okay, so let's take a look at long-term outcomes from Crohn's disease. Let's say we have this person who has Crohn's disease. Let's just say they're really sincere about getting better. Let's just say, for the record, that they decide they're going to take every drug their doctor gives them. Well, where does that leave us? Let's see. This is December 27, 2016. Uh, a little more recent. It says, improving long-term outcomes of Crohn's disease. Improving long-term outcomes of Crohn's disease. So I read this. I'm like, oh, my God. Long term outcomes of Crohn's disease are improving? <laughs> uh, no. Let's see what the article says. This is New York from Reuters Health. It says changes in the medical management of Crohn's disease over the past two decades, that's 20 years, that's basically since I've been to medical school, have been paralleled by improvements in long term outcomes, researchers from the Netherlands report. Numerous clinical trials have demonstrated the effectiveness of immunomodulators, that means um, influencing the immune system, and anti-TNF alpha agents in inducing and maintaining disease remission in patients with Crohn's disease. But it remains unclear whether these treatments have resulted in improved long-term outcomes. This is shocking. You've been using a drug for 20 years, and you can't tell if it improves long-term outcome. Well, what is long-term outcome if not 20 years? So let's take a closer look. So Dr. Stephen Juring from, Massachusetts, from uh, Massachusetts University Medical Center and colleagues used data from the Inflammatory Bowel Disease South Lumberg Cohort. That's 1,162 patients to evaluate changes in the medical management and long-term outcomes of Crohn's disease between 1991 and 2014. Now, just for your information, I started medical practice in 1990 and um, went to medical school, as I said, in uh, 79 to 83. So during this period, 1979 to uh, I ended my medical practice in 2000, or I should say it was ended, During that 13-year period, I did not witness and was not aware of any especially uh, bright and rosy stories. So let's see what they say. There are 316 patients from the 1991 to 98 pre-biological era. So that was when I was in medical practice, which we just used steroids only pretty much. Um, And that was pretty cheap. And from the 1999 to 2005 early biological era, then they had 459 patients from the late biological era. So of this um, 1,162 patients, they had 316 in one group, 387 in another group, and 459 in another group. So immunomodulator treatment increased from 30% in 1991 to 56% in 99 to 70% in 2006 to 2011. So the importance of this is these drugs are frightfully, frightfully expensive. Okay. So meanwhile, anti tnf alpha exposure, expensive drugs, increased from 3% to 41%. The number of patients with complicated disease at diagnosis increased significantly from era to era, but there were no changes over time in the progression rate. So the cumulative five-year probability of hospitalization decreased from 65% in the earliest era to 42% in the latest era. In other words, this is a 30% increase, more or less, and this is comparable to placebo, just by the way. Anything 30% or less in improvement is comparable to placebo. Okay. And the median number of days admitted per hospitalization decreased from 14.5 to 8. So that's a little better than placebo. So number of days admitted per hospitalization decreased. And that can be uh, attributed in many cases simply to um, administrative policies. And so what happened from 1991 to 2015 is people were being sent home with greater degrees of um, intervention. In other words, someone who um, needs catheters is likely to go home, more likely to go home after the year 2000 than before. So the hospital stays shrinking during this period of investigation may not necessarily be due to an improvement in any particular drug therapy. Okay. These improvements were not significantly related to the use of drug therapy. That's what they said, okay, the authors report. So these improvements were more related to differing criteria for admission. So more and more serious illnesses were actually being treated as an outpatient from 1990 to 2005. And the length of admission for hospital stays was getting shorter and shorter. And this was due to basically administrative policies. And so the, the probability of hospitalization decreasing is more a change in simply the way medicine is practiced, not in the individual patient's severity of discomfort. Future studies should address whether or not whether novel treatment strategies such as treat to target can further improve the long- term outcome, in particular the risk of developing structural bowel damage, they conclude. So as they're saying is Hospitalization is not a measure of success or failure. Rather, is a change in x-ray findings or evidence of structural damage, they should use that as an uh, endpoint. Okay, so this doctor from the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill, whose research Crohn's disease extensively told Reuters In my opinion, the most interesting findings are the decrease in hospitalization and surgery rates over the time periods examined. These findings would seem to indicate that we have improved our overall approach to the management of patients with Crohn's disease, and to seem to indicate. And again, so uh, we don't have much to go on here in terms of seem to indicate, very unscientific uh, measure. A lot of times, simply educating people and them understanding that the sooner they get surgery, the sooner they um, suffer even more. So, despite its improvements, the lack of ability to influence the natural history or progression of Crohn's disease with medications is also striking. I'll repeat that. The lack of ability to influence the natural history or progression of Crohn's disease with medications is striking. Striking. How about appalling? Despite using these therapies more frequently, And earlier in the disease course, he said. So I think it's important to note that changing the clinical symptoms that a patient experiences will not necessarily change the natural history of Crohn's disease. No kidding. To this end, there has been increased emphasis on treat-to-target strategies. For example, focused on mucosal healing, which may be better equipped to accomplish the goal of changing the natural history of the disease. Focusing on endoscopic Remission. In other words, just do more endoscopies, just take a look, just look down there, earn more money, more procedures. In addition to clinical remission based on symptoms may lead to more complete remission, which potentially could have a greater effect on the progression of Crohn's disease. Now, bottom line here is even though more expensive drugs are being used, even though drugs are being started earlier in the course of the disease, the drugs are not effective. They are not changing the natural course of the disease. Okay, gotcha. Here's a punchline. Let's look at another study. Diet improves symptoms in small study. What? What? A non-drug intervention. This is, um, actually, I went one step further with my diet than what these people did. But they, I call, uh, half-stepping diet even showed improvement. So here we are. Diet alone can lead children with mild to moderate ulcerative colitis, that's that's a pretty strong statement, mild to moderate ulcerative colitis, and Crohn's disease into clinical remission, suggests a small study published in the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology, a reputable uh, medical document. The changes in the paradigm for how we may choose to treat children with inflammatory bowel disease, says the author, Most centers typically treat with steroids, and this has not changed, okay? This is what year, 2016? This is the same therapy that was used in friggin' 1983. And to put it even more in perspective, half of everything doctors learn in medical school is false, and every four years, another half is false. So literally, because this therapy, steroids, has been used for 30-some-odd years, chances of it being a valid therapy are just about nil. And, of course, we see that the course of the disease is not altered by this steroid. Okay. The diet tested over the course of 12 weeks is called the Specific Carbohydrate Diet. It removes processed foods and sugars, except honey, dairy, and grains. It includes only vegetables, fruits, meats, and nuts, natural foods rich in nutrients, At the end of the three-month study, eight of the 10 patients, that's pretty overwhelming, eight of the 10th, we've passed the placebo threshold, which would have been three of the 10. So eight of the 10 patients aged 10 to 17 who finished the study achieved remission from the diet alone, the authors report. Now, this is really striking because I'm sure they didn't even ask these people to go organic. 12 patients, 9 in Seattle and 3 in Georgia, started the diet with evaluations at 2, 4, 8, and 12 weeks. By the end of the study, the average pediatric Crohn's disease activity index decreased from, get this, 28 to 4. How cool is that? So we basically have a 90% reduction or 95% reduction in severity of symptoms. That is awesome. In other words, uh, it's, it's huge. It's a big deal. Average pediatric ulcerative colitis activity index dropped from 28 to 6. Interesting. So Crohn's, 95% drop, ulcerative colitis, uh, from 28 to 6. That's still pretty good, 70% drop in symptoms. Again, we're operating way outside the placebo range, whereas the drugs were operating right there in that placebo range of 3 percent effectiveness. The diet was not effective for two patients, and two patients were unable to maintain the diet. So 10 people used the diet, remission for eight, 80%. Way more effective than placebo, placebo it's a standard uh, cure rate for anything of 30 to 35%. Okay, so the patients in the prospective trial had mild to moderate disease determined early, either by pediatric Crohn's disease activity index of between 10 and 45 or a pediatric ulcerative colitis activity index between 10 and 65. To be eligible, patients could not have started a new bowel disease medication for at least one month before the study for immunosuppressants and two months for biologics. In other words, they didn't want the effects of the study be, to be compounded by the drugs. Unanswered questions? Yeah, I'll bet there's some. So Dr. Stephen Brandt, professor of medicine and director of the uh, Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, said Initial results are interesting, but inconclusive. Eh, inconclusive. (laughs) He noted that the study was designed to be preliminary and to test safety and potential effectiveness, and results should be interpreted as such. There was no control group, it was open label, and the patient size was very small. You don't need a control group. With these kind of overwhelming results, hmm. In addition, two patients dropped out because they could not maintain a diet, he points out. Uh-huh. In a strictly clinical science way, you have to look at these as failures. You have to assume these people would have done poorly, Dr. Doctor, doctor said. Also, he said, it is important to consider that three of the patients who remained in the study lost weight, a particular concern in children. Now, again, if the children are overweight, uh, that may not be a concern. Still, eight of the original 12 children were in remission, and that is impressive compared with many other therapies for irritable Impressive compared with many other therapies? I think it's com- imp- impressive compared with any other therapies. So even if you include the two kids who wouldn't stick to their diets, eight out of 12, uh, that's a 67% remission rate. This exceeds the effectiveness of the most expensive drugs available. <laughs> he added that it may be unclear how much effect any new medications, rather than diet, may have on the outcomes. But wait, the participants were not allowed to change medications for a month before the study. Some drugs take longer than to show effectiveness, Dr. Brandt said. So Dr. Brand said, among those on azathioprine, which is an immunosuppressive agent sometimes used for cancer, Dr. Brand said that would fall under the one-month restriction in the study that can take two to four months to show effectiveness. According to the study, two patients were taking that drug. So wait a minute. Does azathioprine have an 80% remission rate? I don't think so. The patients may have also become more adherent to their medications because they were part of the study and would regularly be checked by a physician, he added. Now, again, having gone to medical school and seen how this plays out, um, total compliance with ulcerative um, colitis therapies is not associated with uh, better outcome. And we found that in the other study, that um, the basic improvement was was in the range of 30%, which is a placebo And even that improvement could not be attributed to the drugs because more seriously ill people were simply not being admitted to hospitals during that time. For example, during a time of 1990 to 2000, for me, I would never admit a diabetic to a hospital who had a blood sugar under 1,000, right? But the standard of care in the 80s was if a diabetic had a blood sugar more than 135, that was reason for admission, so if diabetic blood sugars, diabetics, diabetics were experiencing fewer hospitalizations in the 90s, that does not mean their blood sugars were under better control because methods of treating higher blood sugars were now available as outpatient and hospitalization wasn't necessary, even though the severity of the illness was the same. And so this is um, what actually happened. So in our other study we reviewed initially, it indicated that the new drugs introduced, um, the TNF, TNF inhibitors, were totally useless. They did not affect the course of the disease, number one, in terms of um, severity. And number two, they didn't affect the long-term outcome. So um, this doctor is making excuses for these good results. So these are the kinds of studies that move us forward and show that it may be worthwhile to take the next step in a large study, he says. In other words, we've seen overwhelming benefit, but don't jump on this. Oh, God, don't take these kids off processed food. Oh, heck no. First, it's important to find out with, with larger studies whether the diet really does work compared with a controlled group, and if so, what part makes a difference, he said. So we see this overwhelming results, and we just, just, just nope, 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 nope. stop, 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 let's not jump into this. In addition, the authors report the diet helped patients move towards a more normal microbial pattern, which raises the chicken and egg question, Dr. Brandt said. Is it that you got improvement in the inflammation and then the bacteria changed, or did the change in the bacteria improve the inflammation? Uh, Duh, does it matter? You just change the diet. So if you change the diet, you're putting in different bacterial uh, agents or different bacteria because you're eating differently. And so maybe those bacteria cause cause a change or maybe the food itself caused a change, but does it matter? All you have to do is just give the person this diet and you'll have 80% cure rate, which ask any herbal bowel person, they'll say, oh, I'll take it. So I think there's great interest in the specific carbohydrate diet. I think it's a very big challenge to follow the diet, he said. He more commonly recommends a Mediterranean-style diet with few processed foods, not few processed foods, and simple sugars and more fish than animal protein. And so we know how effective this recommendation is, right? This recommendation with drugs basically does not in any way influence uh, long term progression of the disease. Whereas this diet in 12 weeks puts people in remission. All right. The authors acknowledged the limitations of the study, and the doctor said in the news release that priorities of treatments will vary by the individual. So the Recover carbohydrate Diet is another tool in our tool belt to help treat these patients. It may not be the best treatment option for everyone, but it is an effective treatment for those who wish to try a dietary therapy, he said. And so we have this uh, Crohn's disease expert, uh, director of Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at Johns Hopkins University. And the last thing he wants is something that's going to cure 80% of his patients. Yeah, yeah. And so... Here we have a diet, which is essentially, uh, you know, the Atkins diet without processed foods. So the Atkins diet permits a lot of processed foods. And if you were around when Atkins was alive, uh, the only processed food allowed in the Atkins diet were ones you bought from Dr. Atkins himself, just by the way. So what you're saying is, okay, try the Atkins diet with uh, no processed foods. And so, of course, question, my question is, how about just a plain old vegetarian diet with no processed foods? Um, so instead of, it, a lot of people are afraid of grains. Uh, I'm not, but whatever. So, hey, get your carbs from potatoes. No problem. Um, but this is stunning that we have something, a diet, that shows 80% response in a small study. And you have something else called the standard of care, which shows zero results over a 20 year period. And there is, hesitation to adopt this diet. And this is actually in, as I said, the medical literature. This is uh, by Medscape, January 4th, 2017. Yeah. This this year. This came out. And the effect on, of diet on Crohn's disease and irritable bowel is just absolutely uh, my opinion, profound. It does make a difference. And the number one cause of this Bowel disease is basically feeding these people, I call it plastic, but non edible items, non edible uh, chemicals. And even worse, when the food is processed, I'm um, depriving the gut of nutrition. So there you have it. Breakthrough, I think it's a breakthrough. And irritable bowel disease, which is, hey, get rid of the processed foods. How about that? How about that? So let's, uh, So what, what's a person to do? So if you have irritable bowel or Crohn's disease, what should you do? Well, uh, you know, medical industrial complex says those drugs don't work. So probably you shouldn't be resorting to drugs. So probably uh, the steroids and all junk drugs are really not in your best interest. I remember when this young lady came to me, she was actually on steroids. And so it was actually not a big deal to get her off the steroids once, got her off all the processed foods, and got her off the dairy. She did very well. So uh, the moral of the story is don't expect a shoemaker to endorse going barefoot. So you have these people making their living in Crohn's disease, and they're definitely not going to be too hyped up over something with the 80% uh, remission rate. That's, that's ridiculous. And he recommends extreme caution, as you can tell, by, uh, in order to, before you decide to follow this diet. And it's just one of the many things that can be tried. So when I was uh, practicing medicine, I had extreme frustration that something like this would come out. And then it's, um don't do it though, because further studies are needed." And then the further studies never materialize, never materialize. So, the uh, moral of the story is you have to use your own judgment sometimes, not necessarily wait for outcome of research. I'm sure this studies probably escaped the notice or attention of your doctor. And if any doctor did read this, he also read the caveat from the expert saying, hey, don't use these results. Don't use these results. But any doctor who's treated uh, irritable bowel or Crohn's disease knows how frustrating it is. And the reason it's frustrating is because, well, the therapy doesn't work. Exactly. So uh, the moral of the story, if you have Crohn's disease, is uh, you might as well do what you think is right because what the doctors have to offer is not going to make a material difference in your life. And this is exactly what the studies uh the doctor's own studies have shown in December of twenty sixteen. So what can you do? Well answer, start immediately going to a non processed food diet. And that means non processed food. Tofu, no almond milk, no soy milk, no rice milk, no processed food. Is what ha- happens. And people say, oh, you know, it's organic. Oh, maybe it's organic, but it's processed. And um, the, I believe the fundamental problem with Crohn's disease is um, malnutrition. So you eat the processed food, the processed food does not have the full spectrum of nutrients in it, even from the foods, the, from the ingredients that are in there. And so um, no nutrition, it means that Weakened can't heal you. So, let's take a look and see if we have some questions. Okay. Uh, the doctor asks, how is it that I can drink lots of water and also add a little salt to it too? And my tongue and mouth still feel really dry. And the water goes right through me. So the next thing to take a look at, if your tongue and mouth are really dry, what causes um, dry mouth and dry tongue when actually you're really pretty well hydrated is you have to take a look at the rest of what you're putting in your mouth to see if there are chemicals that are still going into your mouth. And so these chemicals can also cause dry mouth. For example, people taking psychiatric medications have extremely dry mouth. And so because of this, they drink lots and lots and lots of water, because they have my mouth from their medication, and this actually leads them to overdose on water. It lowers their body's salt, and people have actually died of this. Um, so if you're drinking lots of water, the key is to add salt to it. So if it's drinking water and adding salt to the water does not um, diminish your thirst, then you have to take a look at what else you're putting in your mouth, whether it's drugs or uh, chemical-filled food, that could be causing the dry mouth. Okay. Dr. Daniels, what about people who say they aren't eating any processed foods? <laughs> they're lying. Could it be that environmental chemicals could be involved? Uh, possibly, but you know, unless they're looking at the asphalt, it's unlikely. Um, I guess environmental chemicals, maybe personal care products, but it's something that is touching your skin and going into your body. And anyone who says, who has Crohn's disease and says their diet is is perfect. They're not sincere. I won't say they're not sincere about healing, but their chances of healing are just about zip because the only way to heal Crohn's disease is to change what you're putting in your mouth. Okay. Dying of too much water. Okay. I think high aluminum in the air is dehydrating also. Perhaps. But if that was the case, then how come 100% of people don't have Crohn's disease? So you have to, or, or dehydration, or dry mouth. So the question is not, is breathing the air causing my symptoms? The question is, how come breathing the air makes me sick and isn't making the kid sitting next to me sick? Or another reasonable question to ask is, where can I move that has better air? So those are reasonable questions. But to sit here, to sit where you are, in the circumstances you are, and say, I want to heal naturally, without changing what I'm doing is to say it's an oxymoron. Natural healing means that you change what you're doing. So if you say, well, I'm perfect, everything I'm doing is perfect, and I want to heal naturally without me changing anything, then you're asking, really, you're asking for the medical model. You're asking for the model where the patient is passive and things are done to him and health comes from outside, not from within. So the the posture that um, you're going to heal without changing your behavior is one that does not lend itself to uh, natural healing. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay. Oh, nice. Okay. Hi, Dr. Daniels. Daughter's protein or urine again. C-section scheduled in 18 days. Doctor says she's in full preeclampsia now. Nothing can be done but to have the baby. Okay, so it's already scheduled a week before due date. I told her she could do something by not eating meat and dairy to help bring her blood pressure down. Um, Meat and dairy are ultra high in protein and definitely um, would cause protein in the urine. So, yeah, stopping the meat and dairy probably resolve the issue. It will at least resolve the protein, the urine issue. So they're playing it by ear week to week. so baby can be taken any time now. Um, mother, mother looks and feels great despite all the drama. And this is how the maternal mother death rate has increased sixfold fold over um, the last 25 years that prenatal care has uh, predominated. So hopefully though, she'll survive the whole thing. Dr. <laughs> ask what's the best way to give a child turpentine at the age of six? Honestly, parental authority. This is something people have failed to establish. Uh, a six-year-old kid should understand that whatever mom and dad says, that's what's got to be done. And if you have a six-year-old that will not take turpentine, you have uh, a problem uh, bigger than turpentine, bigger than his illness actually, which is parental authority. So at six years old, the kid should understand that parental wisdom is so great that parents are going to ask you to do things that may not make sense, but you simply have to do them and do them quickly, or bad things will happen. So, in other words, you can't have a six year old where he's running towards a cliff, you tell him to stop running, and he keeps running. That's not going to work. So, you, you need um, in a six year old, to have enough parental authority that what you say is law. But let's just say you failed to do that. You did, didn't do it. Didn't happen. All right, no problem. What you can do is you can apply it to the soles of his feet at bedtime, or you can gently uh, apply it to his abdomen. Those are the two uh, alternatives. Okay. Okay. So, Dr. Daniels, can I use turpentine candy to administer? Uh, t- turpentine to a child Answer, no why the amount of turpentine the candy is just too small. it's so I've made turpentine candy and I've sorted through this whole thing. You only get maybe two drops of turpentine per piece of candy so it really doesn't it doesn't work. Okay oh <laughs> yeah someone to have him hold his nose that's actually pretty good because the nose is a smelling organ, and it's the smell that really um, sets things off. So what you can do is help your kid by holding a nose, you can take it with your kid and say, look, this is something mommy does, this is a big girl thing, we can do this together. Or let daddy do it and say, hey, this is a big boy thing, we do this together, this is what real men do. So uh, I would go for that. Can a person who has multiple surgeries and multiple illnesses, uh, including sickle cell, lupus, Ehlers, Donler, follow this diet and still get the Crohn's disease and remission? Cannot say. However, I would say it's worth a try. I'm not an Atkins diet fan. I personally would cut back the meat, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but the success rate of this diet is pretty darn impressive. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Dr. Dan, I think think that homeschooling is very important so you don't have to worry about the school shrink or teachers interrogating your child and ratting you out to the system. Yes, that's very important. So I had a um, patient in my practice who was um, was worse than autistic, but uh, he had severe behavioral problems mentally slow and physically violent. He's a real problem. And so the school wanted to put him on, dr- on drugs. The father, um, who had custody because I think the mother had d- died of some odd whatever, uh, came to me, bought the kid. So what should I do? So we changed the kid's diet and his behavior just totally cleared up. So um, what happened, though, was they interrogated the child at school and pulled out of him that that he wasn't taking really taking the medications and then they gave the poor father a very difficult time. Okay. All right, let's see questions questions. Let's see oh, there's a question here on our line. Let me see if I can get this. Hi, Doctor Daniels, you're on the air. Your question? Yes, Doctor Daniels, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, I'm calling. Um, I have a deteriorated knee knee problem, and uh, mm-hmm. on, three, on three occasions, I was scheduled to have a knee replacement. Uh, it's pretty much painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't want to have that procedure done. Wanted to find out what what I could use to um, to to rehab my knee without having to go through all that misery. So, um, do you know why you have a bad knee or just kind of showed up? Um, uh, no, from sports. Me many, many years ago. Yeah, sports and surgeries, yeah. You mean, you had sports injuries and had surgery for surgery for those injuries? Yes. All right. So, once you have surgery on your knee, it makes it very difficult to um heal. Because a surgeon removes a lot of bits and pieces that you need to heal. But still, it's worth a try. So one uh, approach is to get rid of all your processed foods, drink a lot of water, and take gelatin, pretty high dose, one tablespoon to four tablespoons a day, in anywhere from one to four cups of water. So that would be um, really the first step. And that would rebuild your cart- rebuild your cartilage. Now, depending on what the doctors did... Um, if they um, stripped out your cartilage, I don't know if they did that. So if they strip your cartilage at, at a young age when they treat these so-called injuries, they're destroying your knee and setting you up for a knee replacement. That's what so I they say did. start the gelatin. Uh, yeah, start the gelatin and, um, you know, see how it goes from there. And uh, I do help people on a one-on-one basis. You can um, go to the website, com and check out a discovery session to sort it out more. Okay. But gelatin is what you say, yep. right? Right now. Yep. I'll be gelatin. That's what I would say. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. Dr. Dennis, what do you think about the food maps diet? Um, I think the food maps diet was basically as high in a fermentable, uh, fermented products. Um, I've not done that. I've, I have not resorted to that, so I've had pretty good results with irritable bowel, and um, I don't use fermented products. The person's problem is they got too much fermented stuff in their um, intestines, as it is. In other words, they're already got a bunch of uh, active organisms fermenting their food for them. Okay, let's see. So I'm scanning through the uh, chat room here. So, uh, while I'm looking for questions here in the chat room, uh, I'd like to remind people to get their Candida Cleaning Report at VitalityCapsules.com. This is your, at the moment, free report that tells you how to make turpentine part of your healing and really save tens of thousands of dollars in um, illness, misery, and wear and tear. Okay. Does Dr. Dan's have an opinion on how to make bone broth soup for best healing? I'm not a bone broth fan. So bone broth is missing too many elements. So uh, I'm a gelatin fan. That's more comprehensive. And I've found more successful and effective than bone broth. So bone broth is not something I uh, recommend. um, Because I've worked with too many bone broth failures. Okay, we have only 60 seconds left, so I can't take another question, although I wish I could. So we will see you again next week, and as always, Think Happens.